Welcome to the Tell Me What You Know podcast. I'm your host, Scott Skelton. I have partnered with the Lufkin Daily News to bring you this podcast about interesting people doing interesting things. We hope you enjoy the conversations about compelling stories, experiences, and viewpoints. Enjoy the show. Today's guest on Tell Me What You Know is Max Albus. Uh, Max is a former Major League Baseball player from Jasper, Texas, who then went to the University of Texas and was a two-sport athlete, then on to the Major Leagues. After the Major Leagues, he came back to his hometown of Jasper, was a community leader and community banker, and we welcome Max Alvis to the show today. All right, Max, good afternoon. Thanks for coming on my podcast and having a little talk with me. Welcome. Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. Well, um, not many people probably know uh, from my podcast, but grew up in Jasper, Texas, and uh, played ball there. And tell me a little bit about growing up in Jasper, Texas, and what would have been what the '40s and '50s. Yes, I was born in 1938. So uh, you know, as a young whippersnapper, uh, you know. Uh, playing around in the sand lots of Jasper, Texas. Someone asked me the other day, he said, how was Little League in Jasper, Texas? And I said, you know, we really didn't have Little League. When we first got Little League in Jasper, I wasn't eligible, I was too old. I was I already 13 years old, so. You know, but Jasper's a great little town. Um, had some ups and downs over the last few years, but it's a great community, got a lot of great people. Uh, got a lot of friends that still live over there. Um, growing up there and participating in sports was was really a lot of fun because being a small school, 75% of the guys that played football played basketball and played uh, baseball and ran track. So it was basically the same guys doing everything with a, a couple of specialties guys mixed in there, but, uh, you know, uh, it was a quiet community, uh, one car family, Yeah, uh, you probably heard of those days, yeah. uh, but, uh, you know, I had three sisters, uh, so I was the only boy in the, in the family, and I guess I was probably spoiled rotten. Uh, Your sister's older or younger? I have one older, and I had twin sisters that were 10 years younger than me. Oh, wow. Uh, they're both deceased now, but, uh, you know, I've got an older sister that lives in Lake Jackson, Texas. Her husband's a retired dentist. It's ironic his name is Max. <laughs> I'll be. Of course, we got Max Jr. here in Lufkin. Right. But, uh, you know, when we'd get together for family gatherings, it, we finally started calling me Big Max and my brother-in-law, Uncle Max, and... Uh, we, we put an ER on Max and made him Max-er. I got so. you. <laughs> but it was great. Yeah. So growing up, end up in high school, take it you're, you're still playing multiple sports? Yeah, yeah, played football, basketball, and baseball. Tried to run track, but that wasn't my cup of tea. Yeah. I always thought track hurt too much. You know, I was a, a distance runner, and, and you got to suffer a lot of pain if, you, if you're really going to run the 800 right. I, I think a determining race was probably my freshman year. And we came out of basketball on one weekend and mm -hmm. had a track meet the following weekend. And they put me on the anchor lap of the mile relay. Ooh. 
and I think I got the baton and we were dead last. And I passed several runners ahead of me. And about three quarters of the way around the track, I hit that brick wall yeah. and started running uphill. And was probably at a slant when I crossed the finish line, if I even crossed the finish line. But I decided then that track was not my cup of tea. So when was the first time you knew the University of Texas might be interested in you coming over there and playing ball? Well, to tell you the truth, I was really excited about playing at the next level, uh, especially football. I loved it. And uh, if you may not know it, but Kilgore Junior College was a highly rated junior college in football back in, in the uh, 50s and 60s. And, and uh, you know, they began to inquire a little bit about me, so I felt like I was going to have an opportunity to go that direction. And uh, baseball season's coming on, you know, and uh, I began to have a good year in baseball. And when I did that, well, Bib Falk was the coach at the University of Texas, and Bib came to see us play foot, uh, baseball in the playoffs. And he became, began to show an interest in me coming to university and, and playing baseball. Well, they began to see that I could possibly be a multi-sport, I think, mm -hmm. athlete. And they began to focus a little more on football, too. But uh, I, my dad made me take the, the baseball scholarship to the University of Texas. And he said, and I told him if I did that, I was still going to play football. Yeah. And uh, he said, but you can always fall back on your baseball scholarship if you're not cut out for college football, if you're not big enough, uh, you know, if you don't like it uh, or you don't make it or whatever. And so that's kind of how I got to the University of Texas. So you went over there on a baseball scholarship, but my understanding is you played freshman or sophomore football too. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Back in those days, uh, Southwest Conference was still in intact. Yeah. And uh, all of, all the teams in the Southwest Conference played freshman football. Got it. We were the Shorthorns, and Baylor was the Cubs, and you know those uh -huh. kind of things. And so we actually had a. You know, competitive league between the freshman football teams and the conference. Yeah. And so freshmen were not eligible to play varsity football at that point in time. Wow. Before Texas, the red shirts era. Right. Texas varsity football was one in nine my freshman year. Yeah. And they changed the coaching staff, and that's the year Darrell Royal came in. Right. And so my sophomore year was Darrell's first full year as football coach at the University of Texas. And uh, a lot of people still say that I was, I'm still pretty hard-headed, and I guess because of my hard head in those days that uh, I like to hit people and that sort of thing, and that kind of that kind of got Darrell's attention. And back in those days, you picked your starting lineup based on their defensive abilities because they had that 
those rules in effect at that point in time. If you started a quarter, you could re-exit the quarter and re-enter. Okay. If you didn't start it, you could only enter one time. Probably. Yeah. Those are complicated and, rules. Yeah, and so Darrell had a decision to make when he was figuring out his starting lineup. And if you follow Darrell, which I know you have, uh, he liked defenses. He can't keep them from scoring. You can't win. Yeah. And so from that standpoint, I was a little better defensive player than offensive player. But I would start the ball game based on that criteria. And so I started 11 ball games my sophomore year for Darrell. I'll be. Yeah. And what did you play on defense? Yeah. It was kind of an inside linebacker. Or right. And then what? big enough to really be doing that. Well, I played one year of football at Abilene Christian. I was red shirted. And, and and I was too small and too slow. <laughs> so you played 11 games for Darrell Royal. Uh, what did you play on offense when you played? I was a halfback. All right. Yeah. Not really. I was more of a blocking back. Yeah. Than, uh, I didn't carry the ball that much. But, I got uh, it. You know, we had we had some some we had some good talent on our freshman team from the year before. And what did you go the sophomore year? What was the what was the? Well, the sophomore year was actually my first year as a varsity player. Right. What did y'all go? What was your rank that year? Your uh, win loss record. Seems to me like we were eight and three. Uh, we played Mississippi in the in the uh, Sugar Bowl. Gotcha. Uh, I don't remember the score. It was awfully one sided in the wrong direction. I gotcha. So it was. Uh, you know, we'll get you next year. <laughs> so after your 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 football season and your sophomore year, you're playing baseball. I take it. And what happens baseball season that well, year? Well, we we won the conference, and back in those days, you had it's not like it is now, where you have all of these tournaments uh, around the country. Uh, we actually played uh, the University of Arizona in Arizona and uh, two out of three series out there uh, to get to go to Omaha. And they beat us in a two out of three series. But I had, I had a great year uh, for the Longhorns. Batting, batting uh, champion for the conference, was that right? three, I believe, is what I hit that, that conference. But uh, anyway, uh, got to play summer ball. Yeah. Uh, fellow was here in Lufkin, Wayne McDonald. I don't remember whether you remember that name or not. He was with Temple uh, Inland's outfit, uh, kind of Arthur's right-hand man, I think, when he was here. But uh, Wayne and I drove up to Grand Junction, Colorado, to play basically independent summer baseball. And uh, I really hit the ball hard that summer. You know, it was just one of those, one of those good times when uh, you do things right and good things uh, happen, and the scouts begin to show some interest. And in, uh, you know, the the modern day draft system was not in effect, ah. and so and so they could they could talk to us back then, you know. And uh, as the summer progressed, and I continued to have success, 
they began to show some real interest. There was two or three teams that were involved with uh, more interest than the others. I think Baltimore was one of them, and the Giants were one of them, and the Indians. And it kind of boiled down to, you know, one team wanted to make a catcher out of me, and one team wanted to make an outfielder out of me. I was playing third base for uh, the whole time I'd been in college. And the Indians wanted me as a third baseman. And it kind of was boiling down to, you know, let's talk money. Uh -huh. And the Indians came out on top. And so I signed uh, in 1958 at the end of the summer, which meant I didn't play any pro ball that year. Right. So 59 was my first year of pro ball. D could you go back and play another year at UT? or No. Okay. Oh, I was, that was you it. were done. And, and actually, at that point in time, as a professional athlete, I couldn't even play football. Gotcha. So they, they altered and changed those rules, uh, you know, at a later date, I think. So, so you go into the, the Major League Baseball. Uh, I take it moving from, from Jasper, and, and Austin was sleepy when you were there. It wasn't what it is yeah. today. Yeah. Um, you, you, you go to Cleveland. What size of town is Cleveland at that time? Oh, well, it, it took a while to get to Cleveland. Now, you've, you've skipped a little. Okay. You skipped four years in there of playing minor league baseball. All right. Tell me and, about that. Well, one other thing, too, uh, my wife, Honey, Honey and I got married in August of 1958. Gotcha. And so here we are in Newlyweds and go back to the University of Texas and try to get some more hours in, that sort of thing. Uh, but my, my first professional assignment was uh, Selma, Alabama. Okay. In the Alabama-Florida League, and uh, again, you know, uh, had a pretty good year that year. Uh, made the all-star team, uh, you know, hit around 300, uh, that sort of thing. Didn't didn't have any power, didn't show any, you know, home run capacity there. Right. Uh, made very little money. <laughs> it was tough back in those days, Scott. But, uh, you know, I'm really excited uh, for the next year. And a lot of people, it, it's been a long time since you, you think about the minor league system back in the 50s and 60s, but the classifications were a little different then. There was class D ball, okay, C, B, A, double A, triple A, then the big league. So there was a different size ladder, so to speak, than there is today. And I think the colleges are being more of the proving grounds. They're making less mistakes than they used to make on uh, ball players. So they don't need all those lower classifications. I think they've got low A and high A and then uh, double A and triple A now. So and, and maybe rookie ball. So that would suffice in there too. But anyway, I was excited about, you know, where I'd get to go the next year. And so... I got my minor league contract, and it was for Minot, North Dakota. Ooh. So my second year, I'm I'm transitioning from a summer in Selma, Alabama, to a summer in Minot, North Dakota. <laughs> I'd say and, the weather extremes were quite uh, pronounced. Yeah, and it was it was a pretty tough bus league. 
Gosh, we were in uh, Minot, North Dakota, Aberdeen, South Dakota, Eau Claire, Wisconsin, Duluth, Minnesota, mm. Winnipeg, Canada, you know. And we were riding an old rickety bus uh, traversing that part of the nor northern part of the United States. Uh, had, a, had a good year there. I got beat out for the batting title that year by a guy uh, most people recognize uh, in baseball now, Joe Torrey. Okay. Won the yeah. batting title that year. Yeah. Uh, most people know him as a manager. Yeah, Joe Torrey hit uh, 344, and I think I hit 343. So it was a tight race, but it was it was a good brand of baseball. We, we, we had a good team. I go to spring training the next year, and I've got a Class A contract for Reading, Pennsylvania. So I'm going to go from possibly from Class C ball to Class A ball, which is a pretty good jump. Right. I walked by the spring training facility where they were playing the AAA games that year in, in spring training, and uh, they had a catcher play in third base for them. I said, I was talking to the farm director, and I said, what, what's going on over here? And he said, oh, a third baseman broke his hand, and we don't have a utility infielder that can play third, and this guy's doing a pretty good job over there. And I said, well, won't you, won't you let me play some with the ball club? We don't think you're ready, Max. And I said, well, won't you let me play during spring training, and we'll see what kind of progress I've made. And Make a long story short, I broke camp with the AAA ball club. Went to Salt Lake City in the Pacific Coast League, so now I've gone from Class C to Class AAA. And uh, I didn't have as much success <laughs> off the bat, but I was unfortunate. I broke my wrist uh -oh. uh, with a collision at first base there, so I missed most of the year with a broken wrist. Next year, I go back to AAA, and um, again, I had, I had a good year. I hit 20-plus home runs that year, and I had a decent average, uh, drove in a lot of runs, uh, was an adequate third, third baseman. Uh, at the end of that season, Cleveland called me up uh, to... Uh, finished the season with them. They, they were not in contention. And so I played the last eight or 10 games of the uh, 62 season with Cleveland. And then went spring training, broke camp with them and was their third baseman basically until I got traded in 1970. Right. Yeah. Right. So, you know, all that moving around from one part of the country to another, I, I guess you just pack up the car and go to the next place, you and Honey, or what, how did that work? Yeah, I, I tell you what, a baseball wife has got a tough life, and uh, honey, honey's, honey's a tough gal. She, uh, she's got to, uh, you know, when the kids started coming along, Max Jr. was born in 59, David four years later and, and shoot, they, uh, you know, she's got to be mama and daddy and uh, Uber driver mm. and that sort of thing. And then when they get a little bigger, she's got to take them all to Little League practice and right. take them up after school and nurse them back to health when they're sick. And uh, 
Uh, a baseball wife is, is an exceptional lady, but uh, I never will forget when I got called up from, uh, to, from Salt Lake City to Cleveland, we were packing up because it was the last series at home and we packed up to drive back to Texas from Salt Lake City, Utah. And they called me to, to come to Cleveland. And uh, I told them that I was going to drive my family back to, uh, to uh, Texas. And, uh, you know, probably take a couple of days. And then I'd fly out the following day, which was the third day. And they said, be here tomorrow or don't come at all. And so it was, you know, Honey and, and Max Jr. drove back from Salt Lake City by themselves with a load of all of our <laughs> everything packed <laughs> everything up you owned yeah <laughs> oh, so it was my. a tough life uh, but uh, you know base, baseball was uh, you know playing the big leagues was that goal that was out there and to get an opportunity to do that well we all agreed that you know here's a shot at it so right we, we made the decision to do it so let's fast forward just you know, you played those those last set of games in in the '62 season. You you you're 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 going into I guess the '63 season, and you're now a Cleveland Indian. Uh, tell tell the the listeners what what that felt like. You know, you're going to start camp with them. I guess break camp with them, and tell tell us about that. Well, that's uh, that was a real high. Uh, you know, you you. After being there at the tail end of the 62 season, all of a sudden you, you begin to feel like I belong in, in the major leagues. And even though I had not had any very much success at that level, I was being encouraged that, you know, that I could. Um, and to go to spring training and play the spring training games and have some success and do the things that necessary for me to be the starting third baseman when we go to Cleveland from the spring training site in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, you know, I, I was on cloud nine. Uh, we had the, everybody I think when they break spring training feels like they have the potential to be a real good ball club too but we had some great arms and uh, you know um, we had some uh, uh, seasoned veterans on the ball club and uh, you know and then a sprinkling of some younger guys like myself we had a rookie that was coming out of the uh, Florida AAA affiliation down there his name was Vic Davalio mm. and Vic Vic just had all kinds of promise. He was an outfielder, could fly, uh, could hit the ball, spray it around all fields. And so uh, had, a, had a shortstop named Tony Martinez that was in our younger group there. And, and they had great uh, uh, aspirations for him to be a great success at shortstop. Anyway, we broke cramp thinking, you know, we're going to go forward and maybe win this thing. You know? Right. Uh, we we didn't uh, we didn't score as many runs as we needed to when needed. Our pitchers didn't hold them to to uh, as few runs as they were capable on on occasion. 
So uh, we didn't uh, we didn't have that that great a year. But again, we were building a ball club that uh, we played well in the '60s. I thought. Really. Yeah. Yeah. So what's what's it life like? Uh, in, in that, that day and age, you know, now they've all got chartered chartered jets and they're they're pampered and you know they, it looks like a pretty good life from uh, the outside. But I know that transportation was different and 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 the world was a different place during that time. Tell us a little bit about just the the grind of a of a sixty game season, sixty game plus season during that era. Well, we played one hundred and sixty two games in a hundred. No, 156 games in 162 days. Wow. And uh, we we flew a commercial airline mostly. Some bus trips. Might take a bus from Cleveland to Detroit. Right. Which was not a great big deal, but, uh, you know, most of the time. But uh, flying commercial, you're kind of on their schedule instead of on, you know, Right. I remember it back at that time. The Dodgers, you know, had had uh, had their own plane, and so they could make arrangements as soon as the ball game's over tonight. We're going to have to be in L.A. tomorrow. That they could leave, you know, at nine o'clock tonight and get on flight. The guys could sleep. They had the whole plane to the, to one team and that sort of thing. But we didn't have to do too many bus trips. We flew some charter planes, um, but it was rapid fire, you know. Uh, we were living out of a suitcase most of the time, so uh, uh, I wouldn't say it was difficult because we were doing what we wanted to do. Yeah. Um, and you get used to it. It's kind of like any other job that has its uh, negative side to it. Uh, uh, you just... Uh, go ahead and take it with you and, and do the job. Yeah. But uh, it, the game's changed. Right. And, and I would say to the benefit of the player, you know, from that sense, you know, and I, uh, certainly the uh, financial aspect of it is a whole lot different than it was back then. But the availability of... of uh, uh, information uh, to make you a better ball player on a daily basis, uh, the, the nutrition, strength and conditioning, you know. Uh, you know, again, we got to go back in the, in the 60s, but we never had what we would call a strength and conditioning. We, we had people that were constantly working, trying to keep us in shape and do those kind of things. And, uh, they watched our weight, and, and though they didn't want you to, to balloon up and do those kind of things. Um, but I, I played uh, 12 years of pro ball, four in the minor leagues and, and eight in the big leagues. And, uh, and I don't ever recall one person in our organization that was designated to the ball club that was a hitting instructor. The manager would pretty well, you know. Uh, so it, it, it behooved the players to have a closeness with the guys that were on the team and, you know, their roommates, uh, talk hitting and that sort of thing. Uh, 
to, to watch and help you correct your slumps you were in because they didn't have film, they didn't have uh, the statistics, they didn't have a hitting instructor that's watching you every time you're going to bat and working with you and mm -hmm. uh, you know, early in the morning or late at night or whatever. Uh, so I think it's to the advantage of, of the ball players today to for them to be able to be the best they can be. Right, and I know you're you're still affiliated with the with the Indians and and uh, doing hospitality and doing uh, spring training uh, fantasy camps and doing some other things. When you go now and look at how it is to now, are you just amazed? Yeah, I really am. Uh, you know, and 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 I look back. It, it's. It's a crazy question, uh, Scott, but with all the sabermetrics that uh, each ball club is involved in, and I was listening to a program in baseball the other day, and they were talking about managing baseball. Right. And really, the starting lineup may come down and be on the manager's desk when he comes to the, to the ballpark. That based on the sabermetrics, analysis that's been done Scott you're seven for ten against this guy and you've you know you've had real success for him so you're going to start today at third base you know right and Max uh, you know you're one for ten and uh, you know he gets you out consistently you've hit into four double plays and so you're not playing tonight <laughs> uh, those kind of things were not available um even though we all knew I've had a tough time hitting this guy. Right. I knew I was in there tonight and I was going to have to do better. Uh, so, uh, you know, when you see guys moving around and not playing tonight, it's for a reason today. Uh, back then, it was because you were hurt. Got it. We had, uh, you know, guys at starting positions and you had a couple of utility infielders or maybe a utility infielder or a utility outfielder that might could do both. But other than that, you were playing. If you were a regular third baseman, I never will forget. I was kind of in a slump, and I said, uh, you know, maybe started pressing a little bit. And uh, my manager at that time was a fellow named Bertie Tebbets. And Bertie called me in the office one day, and he said, Max, he said, you're just eating yourself up. He said, you're my third baseman. Quit worrying about it. Now, I expect production. And if you can't produce up here, we'll have to get somebody that can. But quit worrying about it. Come to the ballpark and wondering if you're going to play. You're my third baseman. You give me 90 feet between every base, and you can play here. I relaxed, went out, started hitting the ball, started doing the right things, you know. So huh. uh, uh, it's, it's just a different game. Uh, my roommate for about four years was a pitcher named Sam McDowell. Yeah. Big left-hander, threw hard, gosh, he threw hard. Struck out just boo-coos. I don't even know his records. But Sam in a ball game, may throw 180, 190 pitches. Which they don't do anymore. No. 100 pitch count is, is reaching pretty close to your maximum, you know, if you go that far anymore. Right. But guys that start, were starting pitchers back in my day were expected to complete the ball game. 
you start it, you're going to finish it, you know. What do, what do you think from your experience watching baseball today, what a starting pitcher they expect him to go? Five, maybe? Yeah, uh, they'd like for him to go five, maybe six. But I did hear uh, an interview talking about uh, they'd really not like for the starting pitcher to turn over the lineup that he's facing and only face him twice. So he don't like for him to face him that third time, which in our day, you've been to bat twice, he struck you out, and you grounded out or whatever. Now I've seen everything he can throw. I got a chance, you know. And <laughs> third so, time's the charm. That's so right. Like... That's right. So you've seen all his pitches. Yeah. You know how hard he throws. You know what his curveball does, you know. Doesn't have a change, throws a sinker. But, uh, you know, now I've got him. I've got a chance with him anyway. Right. And uh, the guys today, they they may have uh, – I was watching a University of Texas game the other day. They used nine pitchers in that UT game. They needed them, but, <laughs> again, uh, you know, you're just not going to face the same guy all the time and really – Hone in on him. You're gonna to have to face the next guy. Different right. kind of pitcher. Different kind of stuff. Different release point. Different everything. Different speeds. One guy throws a sinker. One guy throws a you know uh, what do they call that thing? A cutter. Yeah. Yeah, a cutter now or you know good curveball, good changeup. Yeah, the data that we now have is it changes everybody's job, but it's changed sports too. Yeah. Yeah. I look at them and, and I see them put the shift on. Right. And, of course, I realize it's because the the uh, information they have has indicated that nine out of ten times he's going to hit the ball within their shift. Right. But I thought to myself, my gosh, I wish they had been able to shift on me so I could punch one here <laughs> or drop a bunt down or do something. Right. The other thing is some of the measurements that were awfully important to us back when we were playing ball are not as significant. Batting average, what does that mean now? You know, yeah. Other than to the guy that wins the batting title. Yeah, what do, what do they concentrate on now? Well, they like the home run. The guy that's going to drive in have the big RBIs. Right. Uh, strikeouts, you know, are not important anymore. Uh, you know, used to they said, well, choke the bat up three inches and put the ball in play, move the runner, do something to, you know, maybe they'll make an error, make a mistake or whatever. And now you see as guys now striking out as many times with a runner on, on third base or, you know, with nobody out as you do any other time. They all want to hit the, the, the long ball. And, of course, that's where the big bucks are, too. Right, as we saw this summer. You bet. You know. You bet. And an outfielder making, what was it? It was a couple hundred million? I can't remember. Well, uh, the guy with Washington signed for $300 million, but the guy from uh, Los Angeles signed $500 million. $500 million. Trout. Trout, that's right. Yeah. Amazing. So what were what you not not you but what kind of in general what were the guys making during your era? Well, the superstars, you know, the big guys, the Mickey Mantles and the Willie Mays and those kind of guys back in the in the sixties. 
They were making 150, you know. Maybe Which was a lot of money then. Yes, yes. But I think I think the mean salary in the 50s, uh, in the 60s, was around $35,000. So half the people in the big leagues were making less. Right. You know. Yeah. It, uh, but as I'll, I, t- I'll tell you, my first year in the big leagues, and I played every day, first full year, which was 63. And I led the Indians in basically every offensive category. Okay. Was Cleveland's man of the year, got the whole schmear going there, you know. I made seven grand. Seven thousand dollars. Yes. Played every day. You know, I told you before the before we got on the show that my granddad was the commissioner of the Southeastern Conference right. in the late sixties, early seventies, and the most he ever made as commissioner of what everybody would admit is the premier conference for for football for sure, but a lot of sports made twenty five thousand dollars. And I I have no idea what they're paying the commissioner today, but I bet it's more than a million dollars. I would bet so. But you look at you know all the sports have changed. I was I was I like to watch golf, and I look at what those golfers are making now, you know, for a guy to win a tournament or two and to surpass what Arnold Palmer made in his career as as a golfing professional, you know, uh, times you live in. Yep. So what, of of the years you spent in the big leagues, kind of tell me what some of your favorite memories were those times. Oh, uh, I tell everybody the first day that I, you know, stepped a bat in in uh, in Cleveland, uh, you know, uh, that's, a, that's September the 11th, 1962. <laughs> uh, I got there. Yeah. <laughs> How long would I stay there? I didn't know, but uh, the fact that I had gotten there was was important. Uh, you know, uh, first time I walked in the Yankee Stadium. And my dad was a big Yankee fan, you know. I can't imagine. Yeah, of course. Back in those days, it seemed like you were either a Yankee fan or a St. Louis Cardinal fan because they got more exposure down here with the uh, uh, broadcast uh, ability for people to listen to the ball games down here. But, uh, you know, Whitey Ford and Yogi Berra and and Moose Scour and... and, uh, Tony Kubek and uh, Rizzuto and uh, those guys, yeah. Uh, just meeting people. First time I met Dizzy Dean, you know, and of course everybody's heard stories and they, and I walked up to him and I introduced myself and he said, Max Panda, I know who you are. And those kind of things say, well, why would you know who I am? You know? Yeah. But, uh, Funny story there, a friend of mine, his name was Herman Hancock, and he did the publicity, and he was a cowboy at heart and put on the Jasper Lions Club rodeo for a number of years and was involved with with getting the stars there and was always looking for an avenue for public relations on the, on the rodeo. 
And he called me in New York and he said, Max, you, you know you, you're going to be on national television today? And I said, no, I, I really didn't know that. And he said, well, you are. And he said, you know, they will give information in relationship to what's happening in your hometown or whatever, if, if they have that. And he said, we're having the 50th annual Lions Club Rodeo and it's been a cowboy rides tonight so that a child will walk tomorrow, those kind of things. Right. And he said, here's the dates. And he said, if you'll give that to Dizzy Dean, said he'll, he'll broadcast that while you're at bat. So that's the occasion I went up behind the batting cage and introduced myself to Dizzy. Yeah. And I gave him that information. And I went to bat four times a day, and he read it every time I went to bat. And my friends dying and Jasper getting this national publicity yeah. on the Jasper Lions Club Rodeo. Which you couldn't <laughs> buy for all the money. <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah, that's like our Little Leaguers or something going as far as they have recently and yeah. all the publicity they brought to Lufkin and all the goodwill and – and yeah, that's that stuff is incredible. I met that group of kids out at the uh, Pancake Supper out here at the uh, yeah. at the college, and uh, what a good-looking big bunch of boys! Yeah, those those are those boys are athletes, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. yeah, you know something that's changed in my world because because I I played football through high school, actually won a state championship, and then played that one year at Abilene Christian, but. But size, the ball players are bigger. Yeah. Ever, you know, football players, baseball players, everybody's bigger than you and I are now. That's right. Uh, I never will forget uh, when I went to the University of uh, Texas. Uh, we were we were running some drills out there, and we had a line coach. His name was Mike Machowski, and I didn't know it at the time, but Mike was in the, in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and. And he said, Max, I've been watching you. And he said, you like to hit people, don't you? And I said, I sure do. And he said, well, let me give you a good piece of advice up here. Uh, we're at the next level. And he said, if you're running down the sideline and you see them closing in on you and you want to try one of those head-on butts that you've been used to doing in high school, or you can take the sideline. He said, take the sideline, you'll, you'll last longer. <laughs> so he's telling me that in college. You know? Yeah. And that was when I was a freshman out there. But gosh, they, they are bigger. And, and let me, it's amazing to me that they're as quick and agile and fast as they are. Yeah. They're just uh, exceptional athletes. I've, I've taken pictures uh, on the sideline at the Lufkin Panther games and the closing speed of the players to each other is it's it's really scary almost so so you you go through 1970 and you realize i guess maybe the 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 time is coming to a close uh and and you're headed back to jasper kind of tell me about that stage of your life well i i'd gotten traded to milwaukee uh, in 1970, the day before the season opened, mm. uh, Cleveland had gotten a, a, another third baseman in the off season. At the point in time, I didn't know a lot about him, but he was a heck of a third baseman. His name was Craig Nettles. Nah. Yeah. And so 
the, the handwriting was kind of on the wall uh, as to who was going to be the, the third baseman for the Indians that year. And so I was involved in a trade to Milwaukee. Got over there and had not played any games in spring training, had not seen any live pitching. So all of a sudden I'm thrown in the lineup in Milwaukee. Got off to a slow start. There was a guy on our ball club named Tommy Harper. And Tommy was an outfielder by trade, but could play the infield. And so to switch the lineup around, they began to play Tommy Summit third. And Tommy wound up hitting about 35 home runs that year. And so to make a long story short, uh, I rode to Pan most of the summer. And at the end of the summer, Milwaukee released me. And so I was basically, and back in those days, until they released you or traded you, you were their property. So uh, there wasn't any free agency at that point in time, and there wasn't any playing out any options or any kind of things like that. And there wasn't any... Uh, agreements that if I don't like what you're doing with my contract at this point in time, there wasn't much I could say about it anyway. But I got released. And I wasn't too upset about that, Scott. I I still felt like I, let me back up and say I was coming off of knee surgery uh, from the year before, but fully recovered and felt like I was in good shape uh, and could play. And, uh, you know, I'm 32 years old. I feel like I still got a little life in me and can still produce. So I contacted uh, about six or eight teams um, to try to, you know, uh, get a contract with them. It was kind of, that was about the time that the players union was flexing their muscles and making some demands and you know uh, some of the things that had been negotiated back then and I, and I can't quote them verbatim but if you made the ball club you were entitled to X amount of money and if you if you stayed a month you were entitled to X amount of money so to kind of keep their expenses down approaching players like me at that time, it was it was almost uh, as if that's the way all of them were going to do it. That as, an, as a veteran, and we don't know a lot about your condition right now, but why don't you come to spring training at your own expense, and we'll look at you. Well, being the hard head I was, uh, you know, I, I've been playing for 12 years. I've played the same way every game I've ever played in. Uh, kind of a hard-nosed player. Uh, here's what you get. And I'm not going to beg you for a job. So I went back to Jasper, Texas, and uh, I was in the insurance business for myself there for about uh, four, four or five years. Still a little bit angry about, <laughs> about maybe I should have tried. Right. Uh, a little bit angry that somebody just didn't think enough of me to offer me, a, a, you know, even a minor league job at that point in time. But anyway, uh, in 1977, 
friend of the family was president of First National Bank in Jasper. Right. And uh, he called me in one day and he said, Max, have you ever thought about getting into the banking business? And I said, no, I've borrowed a little money, but I've, I've never loaned any. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I was thinking only that segment of the banking business. Anyway, to make a long story short, on April Fool's Day, 1977, I went to work at the First National Bank, Jasper. And uh, about four years ago, I retired from active duty. I'm still with them as a board member uh, on the board of our sister company and on the board of our holding company. So I'm somewhat still affiliated with the organization, but I've spent over 45 years uh, with the bank. And, uh, you know, so I've had basically three careers, uh, one in professional sports and a small one in business for myself and then in the banking business for the rest of the time. Is there anything between uh, baseball and banking that... Uh that translates, that makes you good at one at the other or not? Not really. <laughs> not really. Uh, probably the guys today uh, learning how to manage that money <laughs> would uh, be there. But, I, you know, again, that was a, that was a tough stretch. Uh, honey and I, and we got the boys, and I'm going to work at a, at a new job. And uh, after about two or three years there, I started going to SMU at uh, you know, the Graduate School of Banking that they have there. It's called Swigsby, the Southwestern Graduate School of Banking, and it's a four-year program. And you're on campus two weeks in the summer and do extension work the rest of the time. So here I am taking our vacation, and I go to Dallas and stay on campus to go to college. And then... When I get back home, I start doing my paperwork, hmm. start writing my papers, doing the research, and uh, got the boys returning, and I'm working every day, and so, you know, it, it paid its dividends, and I'm grateful to First National Bank of Jasper for, you know, putting up with me and teaching me and uh, showing me how to become a banker. And uh, the banking business is kind of like the baseball business. It's changed a lot in the yes. past 45 years. Right. So, uh, you know, but it's been good. I, I really appreciate it. What was it like going home to your hometown and, and becoming, you know, going from a, a high school student, left to go to UT, went into pro, pro baseball, you come back and you're a member of the community. Now you're, you're – you, you become a leader. What was that like being a hometown and then kind of transitioning into a new phase there? Well, it really wasn't that difficult, Scott, because uh, I never stayed in Cleveland in the wintertime. Uh, I always went back to Jasper. Uh, honey and I have always had a home there in Jasper. Our boys uh, went to school in Jasper, graduated there. Uh, uh, we got married in the church. First Baptist Church of Jasper, and we've been members. Our kids were baptized there, you know. Uh, so Jasper's always been at the center of the Alvis family. Yes. Well, that made it better. And, uh, you know, when we transitioned over here just recently, uh, you know, it's been difficult, 
just because we've gone away from Jasper when we've been there all our lives. Um, but, uh, you know, we're, we're adjusting. Uh, fortunately, uh, being involved with the bank, I go back once a week and have a few committee meetings and right. that sort of thing. So it's keeping me involved and I see more people than Honey does. But, uh, you know, uh, it was good. When I went to work at the bank, I, I, I felt like I knew everybody that came in the bank as a member of the community, or I knew their parents, mm -hmm. uh, one or the other. That mix has changed just like everybody else has with the development of Raven Country and the, uh, the change in the you know makeup of the community. All the young people are moving on and elsewhere now. And uh, but it's uh, I've still got a son that lives in Jasper and he's part of the community, active in the community. His wife's a teacher in the high school there, uh, junior high school, excuse me. But uh, you know, it was good. Uh, I, I love a small town. Yeah, I grew up in a small town and. That one of the reasons we moved to Lufkin was raise our kids in a small town, a, high, a one high school town, you know, where everybody cheers for the same team on Friday night. So that's right. So well, and I know you're still involved even to this day with the Indians. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I guess uh, one of the uh, one of the fun things is Honey and I um, go out to uh, Goodyear, Arizona, in January of each year. And we do what they call a fantasy camp. And I know you're familiar with a fantasy camp, but your, your listeners might not be. And it's basically uh, a group of people uh, that have got just a, uh, an undying love for the game of baseball and or an undying love for the Cleveland Indians. Now, I've seen a lot of people that participate in these fantasy camps that because most ball clubs have them now, they're making the circuit and doing every, every uh, major league team's fantasy camp. But in essence, what it is, it's, it's a one-week spring training experience. And it costs a pretty good fee for them to go to this thing, but they actually fly in on a Saturday. Sunday morning they're at the ballpark. They get their uniform with their name on it. It's an exact replica of the Indian's uniform. They got their bats with their names on them. They take their pictures and do their bubblegum card uh, deals for them. And they start with an exercise program and then we go through instructions by former pros like myself, infield, outfield, pitching, catching, hitting. Then they all take batting practice. And then that afternoon, the first day, alphabetically, they distribute them amongst teams. And they, they all play a game. Last year we had eight teams. Uh, so as an example, there was four games going on that right. afternoon. We scout them. Well, old Scott looks like he can throw the ball pretty good. Scott, you ever pitch any? No, I never have pitched any. Well, you got a pretty good arm. Can you throw if I need you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So 
we do that, we scout them, and immediately after the games are over, we have our draft. And we form a team. And then that night we go have dinner with our team and we pick a team name and we kind of look at where do you want to play and it's your fantasy. What would you like to do while you're here? We'll try to satisfy it if we can. You right. Know, because we know you're out here to enjoy this and to do the things you want to do. So if you want to play third base or if you want to catch, most people don't want to catch. <laughs> but uh, all of a sudden that outfield's a long ways out there. So a lot of the guys that want to play the outfield after about the second day, they don't want to play the outfield anymore. <laughs> anyway, uh, there's two divisions, four teams in each division. Balls down to, um, you know, Friday, uh, Thursday night, uh, we have a championship game between the winner of each division. Um, Friday night, we have a big banquet and awards. Everybody gets, uh, you know, an autographed bat from all us guys that used to play and and they get a, if they won the thing, they get their trophies and that sort of thing. It's a great experience. We've got guys and I, I you know, I, it started out considerably less than this uh, than a fee that they're paying now. But we've got people who are repeat campers. And I'm talking about 15, 18, 20 years they've been doing this. They come back every year. They just love the Indians and or love baseball that much. Now that sounds like, like a fantastic time. It's great for us. Right. Uh, you know, it keeps me kind of tied to the game. But, you know, I say, Max, I, I didn't know you could had that much power. And I said, well, I, you know, compared to today, I, I didn't have much power. And they said, yeah, but you hit over 100 home runs. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just it just sounds like an awesome way to promote baseball, promote the sport, and have a great time. And it sounds like the repeat customers are probably coming with their friends, too. One, one other thing that I do, and in fact, I'm leaving Tuesday and fly back to Cleveland. And um, Wednesday, we've got a big charity golf outing and uh, silent auction and live auction. The Cleveland Indians, uh, they fund all the recreational programs for the inner city kids of the city of Cleveland, Ohio. And this is one of their big fundraisers uh, this, this, this week. And uh, I've been doing it for about 20 years, and it's a lot of fun, and it does a lot of good for the, for the kids in the city of Cleveland. So I'll be doing that next week, and that's probably the two biggest things I do with the Indians. Every once in a while, I go to a, a charity golf outing and do a scramble with somebody, but other than that, it's mostly the Indians. Well, that's awesome. Well, you know, I, I really appreciate your time today. It's fun to talk to East Texans that have had, you know, interesting experiences, different experiences, and you've been very gracious to tell our listeners about yours. I appreciate you. Sure, Scott. Thanks for having me, and uh, thanks for accepting Honey and I over here in Lufkin, Texas. Hey, Lufkin, Texas is a great place, and we're glad you've cho chosen to join us too. So Bye. thank you.